welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Justice Anthony Kennedy has been the swing vote on the Supreme Court for the past dozen years. His retirement after more than 30 years on the bench gives President Trump the opportunity to appoint a successor that could create the most conservative court in generations. Here's Trump speaking at a rally in Fargo, North Dakota yesterday. We have a pick to come up. We have to pick a great one. We have to pick one that's going to be there for 40 years, 45 years. My guest is Michael Dorf, a professor at Cornell Law School who clerked for Justice Kennedy. Mike, describe Justice Kennedy's legacy. I think the first thing you have to point to are his majority opinions for the court in four uh, rights cases recognizing the rights of gay and lesbian Americans initially not to be uh, intruded upon in the bedroom and then uh, the right to marriage. Uh, in addition, he was a very strong supporter of freedom of speech that sometimes swung liberal, it sometimes swung what we would call conservative in a case like uh, Citizens United, which he authored. Uh, and he was a staunch believer in federalism and limits on the federal government in favor of state power. I think uh, all of those aspects of his legacy will likely survive. Uh, there are other decisions where he cast a decisive vote uh, where I think it's uh, less clear. Tell us about those. So he uh, cast the fifth vote, joining the more liberal justices uh, in an abortion case uh, recently out of Texas. Of course, in 1992, which was the year I clerked, he joined uh, fellow Republican appointees Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter to uphold the central holding of Roe versus Wade, as uh, the court called it. So I think the uh, the abortion right is uh, very much potentially in jeopardy based on you know the assumption that uh, President Trump named somebody uh, considerably more conservative on that issue than Justice Kennedy was. Uh, he was generally skeptical of race-based affirmative action, but he didn't rule it out. And in a case from Texas uh, a couple of years ago, he actually approved a University of Texas uh, affirmative action program. I think that's uh, quite likely to be overruled uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and then he was not a categorical opponent of the death penalty, but he did rule it unconstitutional in a variety of circumstances, uh, including the juvenile uh, death penalty. And I think those, uh, those decisions are vulnerable. You think that gay rights is not vulnerable? Well, I think it's technically vulnerable, but I don't see a lot of appetite on the current court uh, to revisit that, partly because uh, unlike abortion, which has remained divisive since the Supreme Court recognized the right in 1973, uh, the country has moved substantially, even in the uh, few years since the Supreme Court recognized the right to same-sex marriage. Uh, I believe that um, in every state except Alabama now, uh, more people favor than oppose uh, legal same-sex marriage, and nationally it's something like 60 percent. So now, of course, the Supreme Court is not uh, simply a reflection of public opinion polls, and, uh, you know, they're uh, there's a possibility they could they could reverse the result. It was, after all, five to four. Uh, but I don't think they're going to move aggressively in that direction. You clerk for Justice Kennedy. Tell us a little bit about what he's like. 
He's a uh, extremely professional person in his in public settings. So he's always very courteous to lawyers. He asks tough questions, but always um, in a in a fair manner. Uh, back in chambers, he's you know a ter- was a terrific boss to work for. He has a wonderful sense of humor. Um, he works hard, but you know it's uh, it's always clear that he wants people to have their family lives. He's very devoted to his. His own family, his uh, wife, his adult children, his grandchildren. Uh, so he's just a kind of all-around, um, uh, you know, stand-up guy, is the way I would put it. You mentioned his family, and I believe he mentioned his family to to uh, some people about one of the reasons why he might be retiring now. Do you have any insight into why he chose this moment to retire? Um, not in particular. I mean, you know, if we were talking about um, virtually anybody else in their early 80s in any other line of work, you wouldn't even think to ask the question, why are you retiring? you say, well, that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a, an appropriate point in your career. Uh, most people want to step down while they can still do the job before their faculties decline, while they have some time to spend with their family. So I think for Supreme Court justices, at, uh, the d- reasons to d- retire when they do are pretty much like those for anybody else. Now, we heard President Trump say that he asked Justice Kennedy for some advice or for whom he would like to see on the court. Do you have any suspicions about who that might be? Well, uh, about who... Who he might want to see replace him. Well, I think Justice Kennedy would want to be replaced by somebody who shares his views to the extent possible. I think that's probably not going to happen with respect to Justice Kennedy's uh, broad views about social issues. That is, I think the president has made clear he wants to nominate somebody who's more of a down-the-line social conservative. Um, I think foremost, of course, Justice Kennedy would want somebody who respects the traditions and integrity of the court. And I think you're likely to see someone like that. That is, you know, I, um, I think someone like Justice Gorsuch, who is professionally extremely qualified, person of uh, intellect and integrity, uh, but very, very conservative. Will, so what names are you hearing well, I see the same list as everybody else. Okay. Uh, the, I'm hoping know. for more insight. Well, let me, so I'll give you one one little piece of insight, not based on any kind of inside information, but just a little bit of arithmetic. So you heard uh, the president say that he wanted to pick somebody who's going to be on the court uh, for 40 or 45 years. Uh, some of the names on his list are people in their 60s, and quite a few are in their 50s. I, I'm, I'm in my 50s myself. I, I would think anybody who's uh, at least as old as I am or, or older has got to be ruled out. I mean, I can't imagine serving until I would be 99. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I think that that means he's going to try to skew it towards one of the, the younger people on that list. You're a professor of constitutional law. Has the court become more polarized in recent years, despite what Chief Justice John Roberts says, that he prefers to avoid those stark divides? Uh, Yes and no. So, you know, a lot of uh, very important landmark decisions from the past were five to four. You can see that going back uh, earlier in the 20th century, for example. I think what's happened in recent years that was not the case previously is that the five to four divisions tracked not only differences in jurisprudential philosophy, but the party affiliation of the president who appointed the justices, so that uh, even before Justice Kennedy announced he was stepping down, the four uh, 
most liberal justices were all appointed by Democrats, and the five most conservative justices were all appointed by Republicans. Uh, and that, I think, has tended to uh, emphasize a point that the Chief Justice would like to de-emphasize, which is the role of political considerations, not in the sense of narrow partisan advantage necessarily, but political in the sense of people having ideologies and values that differ by party uh, in the consideration of their cases. Thank you so much, Michael, for those insights. That's Michael Zork. He's a professor at Cornell Law School, teaches constitutional law. On the last day of the Supreme Court's term yesterday, in a 5-4 to decision with the conservative justices in the majority and the liberal justices in the minority, the Supreme Court ruled that government employees have a constitutional right not to pay union fees. The court overturned a 40-year-old precedent that had let public sector unions collect so-called agency fees from non-members to help cover the cost of collective bargaining. Here's Democratic House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Shame on this court for this decision, especially on top of the Citizens United decision. Undermines the First Amendment, undermines our decisis, undermines our democracy. Joining us is the named plaintiff in the case, Mark Janice. He's an Illinois state government employee who is not a union member. Thanks for being here, Mark. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. You weren't the original plaintiff in the case, which was brought by the Illinois governor, I believe. How did you join the case and get involved? Well, I I got involved because I I got fed up with paying a fee to a union just to keep my job, because without paying the fee, I wouldn't have a job. And I just felt that was totally wrong. Um, So how much much was the fee you paid? It's approximately $600 a year. And... um, There are major costs involved um, with bringing a case to the Supreme Court. How did you uh, manage to bring the case? Who was your support? Well, my support was the Liberty Justice Center, uh, who I approached and was able to find out about, you know, through a variety of sources. And we began a discussion, and they were willing to take on the case. And and then it went on from there uh, till yesterday's decision. So explain this for us. as uh, an employee, a public employee, you get take advantage of the union's negotiated pay raises, health benefits, pension. Why should you not have to pay some kind of fee for the advantages that you get? Well, because it's not my choice, uh, and I don't have any ability to say yes to the union versus no to the union. Um, it's, in Illinois, it's a state law that if, if I work for the state of Illinois, um, I'm covered under this inclusive collective bargaining agreement, uh, something the unions asked for and received uh, quite a few years ago. And the people like myself that uh, may not agree with everything that the union does and what it says, uh, we don't have a choice and we don't have a voice in that matter. So we're, you know, this case is about that worker freedom and the like. Um, I I find it quite interesting with, uh, you know, Nancy's uh, remarks that uh, you played at the the beginning of this, uh, you know, is that so my First Amendment rights should be trampled on just, you know, in order to keep a union and, and keep what it wants to do? But you still haven't answered then, but why then take advantage of the negotiation? I'm not talking about the union, uh, you know, going out and endorsing people or anything like that, but your cost was just for equivalent of what the union was allegedly getting you by its negotiations. 
Well, let's let's look at the at the facts. Yes, they say it's for collective bargaining, but when we asked for an accounting of it as part of our due diligence, we could never really get a good solid um, accounting of where all this money went. And I would also have to say that if uh, you have a bargaining committee that, that goes to negotiate a contract, and let's say you have 10 people in that bargaining committee, is there such an increased cost to bargain for 5,000 people versus 10,000 people? I would say you've still got the same amount of, of costs, and you know there's, there's no reason to, for the extra fees. Your, your, your basis cost is already covered. Many people say that this is a severe blow for unions. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not. Unions are still going to exist. Uh, they still will be able to collect a bargain. They can still go out and represent the people that they want to represent and the people that voluntarily you know, want to join the union and pay the fee. That has not changed at all. And it's up to the union, uh, whichever union it might be in the public sector, you know, to make that case to the membership and you know, produce a product, if you will, that says, you know, we have something that, that I think you ought to buy into and give us that choice as to whether to buy into it or not. What specifically did you object to that the union did that you said was, you know, you disagreed with? Well, it was, a, it was a number of issues. It was the way they negotiated. There wasn't, a, a, what I felt, a lot of transparency. Uh, there were issues of seniority. There was in, issues of overtime and uh, a number of other issues that, um, you know, I just, I just couldn't abide by and, and understand in the state of Illinois, which is in terrible financial position, yet they kept going out, uh, you know, trying to get more money. And when they couldn't get it, they would go out and, and have protests in the streets. And, and I'm thinking, you know, this, this isn't right. They say they're for the middle class, but in Illinois, we about a year ago, we had a 32% income tax increase. So you didn't want you know. the, the raises and the pay hikes, anything like that? No, I, I think I can negotiate on my own, but at the same time, I also have to look at the reality of, of what the state budget is and, and what taxpayers can afford and, and, and what is happening within the state. All right. And, and, well, this, and this also goes across the, the whole United States and 22 other states, too. All right. Well, thanks for being with us. That is Mark Janis. He is the named plaintiff in the case that the Supreme Court decided yesterday uh, overturning mandatory union fees. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.